Hello, fellow pilots and podcast listeners. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman Captain David Campbell, and you're listening to the Alaska Pilots Podcast. There have been a number of communications recently about two topics surrounding management's interactions with your elected leadership. While the topics themselves are important, what is particularly valuable is what these topics inform us about management. That is, how management is interacting with your elected leadership and the pilot group, and what we can expect from them going forward. It paints a picture in a way, and sadly, that picture is not pretty. Of course, I'm talking about hymns and the uniform. There's a lot to unpack here, so I have divided this episode into two parts. In part one, you will hear what your MEC believes our interactions with management tells us about what to expect from them. Also, we know you have concerns about management's unilateral decision on the uniform, and we will discuss whether getting fitted for and ordering is required at this time. In episode two, we will discuss some of the things your MEC is doing to protect your careers and what you can do to help in that effort. I will be speaking with three of your elected pilot leaders who have had the most direct interaction with management in the last few years. Current MEC Chairman, Captain Will McQuillan, former Chairman and current ALPA Executive Vice President, Joe Youngerman, and former MEC Chairman and current MEC Secretary, John Wrigley, AKA Chewy. Gentlemen, thank you for being here today. Yep, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, David. Will, why did you and the MEC feel compelled to communicate about these two issues in the way that you did? If you go back, obviously, and you look at the executive summary of the strategic plan, which was released to the pilots, uh, it kind of you know, foreshadows a lot of what we've seen because the, they were the concerns of yesterday. They're the concerns that I'm sure Joe Youngerman and Chewy could talk about for hours in here if we let them. Um, but they're also, in a troubling fashion, becoming the concerns of tomorrow. Uh, we, as you know, in the room, and I guess the pilots need to know, had uh, during the June MEC meeting a, a sit down with senior management in terms of uh, Mr. Tilden, Mr. Minicucci, Mr. Tackett, and uh, Mr. Ladner. And it was the first time that management's been over to talk to the union and help me here, Chewy. Long time, right? Months, months and months. Well, more, yeah, uh, we're pushing a, a very, very long time. And that was right on the heels of the release of the executive summary of the strategic plan. And it was, it was a chance for them to, in essence, explain to us about how this next negotiating cycle was going to be different, right? How we were able to set expectations that, hey, if, if you're saying you're better than what we've said in the executive summary, then how is this going to be different? There was a lot of conversation in that meeting about, um, you know, focusing forward, of course, uh, but then also looking at uh, working together, that collaboratively that was going to be the key to success in this next negotiating cycle. And uh, obviously, if you look at the two issues you just brought up, the uniforms and the hymns uh, negotiations, that's where, again, I think that the ghosts of, uh, of yesterday are starting to completely haunt us. Will, as officers, you know you've been there. The only interaction with the officers and the senior uh, executives has been us traveling to corporate headquarters. And the last time that Mr. Tilden 
actually came over here, or Mr. Minacucci, I believe, has been over a year. Our MEC has made it clear that if Mr. Tilden or Mr. Minacucci have something different to tell them than what we have seen historically, we are willing to listen. So the the interactions we've had have only occurred because we have asked for meetings and this was the first time that they came over here to actually address us together in a in a scenario or in a, in a situation not at Angle Lake in which we've asked to address specific problems. And Joe, you've been dealing directly with this management. Has this been your experience as well? Yeah, and, I, and to, to add on to what Chewy's saying, I think, uh, you know, we the geography, regardless of, of where we meet, um, the situation always is the same, just as Chewy had, uh, laid out. It's, uh, there, it's not really a meeting where we're looking for solutions to problems from their point of view. It's them trying to convince us that, you know, there is no problem, that if we weren't telling the pilot groups to be angry, they wouldn't be angry. But of course we know, and we certainly hear that from the pilot group, that there are real problems out there. There are problems with schedules, uh, of course, the whole HIMSS situation, uh, the uniform situation, um, the list goes on and on, the scope discussion. I mean, this goes back as far as uh, Chris Nataro and I sitting down with uh, senior leadership and, and talking about, you know, post-JCBA, uh, unresolved issues that the pilot group uh, were, were up, was upset about. And how to get the pilots on board, that was Brad's big thing. How can we get you guys on board? So we clearly laid out, uh, you know, what the issues were, what needed to be addressed. It wasn't a long list. And we were, you know, of course, given a commitment that they would try to, to solve some of these problems. In the end, over a year later, two years later, uh, none of those issues have been uh, solved. Uh, very li little effort was made to even uh, explore any new ideas to, to come up with solutions. So it's, it's a lot of rhetoric, uh, just as Chewy said, it's a lot of feel-good communications, but pilots are more sophisticated than that. We need real solutions to what we all know are real problems. Yeah, I think, and, and one of the things that, that Joe hits on there, though, is one of the promises and one of the um, the plans that they've articulated is that we all have to work together. That has been a consistent, right? We all have to row together. We all have to work together. We have to, the success of this company requires uh, a partnership, right? That's what Flight Path was all about, $20 million worth of partnership talk. And I would argue that that's what speaks to our concerns, uh, as I said, in, in this negotiating cycle too, particularly when it comes to, to hymns and uniforms. Um, th these are two things in which partnership was key, partnership was contractually required in the case of uniforms, and uh, they've, they've shunned it. Yeah, and you know what's a little frustrating is when you speak of partnership, both of these issues would be an easy thing to apply partnership to. Right. In other words, the hymns, for example, are things that exist throughout the industry. And so becoming a partner with management for that, you would think would be easier than it has been. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's been three years of this. This was, Hims was my project that was handed to me when I first got elected, and it would seem to be something that would be a simple task to take on because there is so much existing language and best practices in the in the industry. You just plagiarize it, lift the language you want off the shelf and put it into place. And we, you know, I really didn't want to get into, you know, what went on on each of these, but more on what's overarchingly important on the issue. But, um, but, but that just didn't prove to be the case. And that is one of the other key concerns is just that problem solving, even when there are easy solutions, has, has proven to be just insanely difficult. And that's what I'm talking about with this current negotiating cycle. If, if it isn't hymns and it isn't uniforms, but it's what it foreshadows in terms of problem solving when we start to talk about much more difficult topics in this negotiating uh, cycle, you know, we're going to move to cornerstone issues. We're going to be moving on to issues that touch the pilots' lives every single day, whether it's hotels or schedules or crew meals or vacation. And there's plenty of really good existing language and lessons to be learned and, and easy ways to solve problems. And, and I suppose that that's one of my greatest concerns, and I'll let Chewie and, and Joe jump on that about how hard it seems to be for them to effectively problem solve around something that the rest of the industry just doesn't have uh, an issue with. Multiple times, the MEC in place has given the company management a roadmap for success. And multiple times, that roadmap has been ignored. Even pieces that they eventually agree to are painful to bring to the table. It is a painful process. So the two issues that we've been speaking about more recently, can you tell us more about how that has informed your view of management and what we can expect from them going forward? I think the, the obvious takeaway is that there are issues of control here and that when you look at both the, the HIMSS agreement that in the HIMS language that was agreed upon and and voted on by your MEC, um, and the fact that they can't come to put that language into you know the, the contract as part of a, a you know language that people can can that cannot be unilaterally changed, um, and then the same thing that we have this one piece of our contract. Uh, should be more, but one definite piece that requires mutual agreement on the uniforms, and they can't seem to come to grasp with having to, to work with us on that solution. They want, I guess the overarching theme is that they want unilateral control over every little bit of what touches our lives, whether that be, you know, hymns or whether it be uniforms or whether it be scheduling. They don't want to be bound by a contract. They want to be able to unilaterally set the direction for the pilot group and change it at will. Yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing is it's really a mixed message for management. On the one hand, they want to enter into some kind of partnership with us, but in these occasions where we have an opportunity to do that, as you say, they want full control. They're, they're unwilling to enter into an agreement that binds them to mutual agreement with the pilots. Yeah, and, and the reason that that obviously is so important is because things change and that we want to be able to know what the rules of the game are, right? That's what your contract is, is, is a rule book that we can all develop expectations and plan our lives around. And if you look at current portions of our contract that lack that partnership, um, where we seem to have key frustrations that the pilots have identified, 
time and time again in feedback to reps and to surveys, you know, we're trying to establish and, and mandate that partnership so that the pilot's interests are protected, and there just seems to be no interest in that at the table at this time. I'd also like Joe to weigh in on his observations about the company's view of partnership over the years. Yeah, thanks, Julie. And I, I was just going to say there, following Will, that uh, you know, one one thing we one one word you hear a lot from this management group is flexibility, and unfortunately, it only applies to them. They want the flexibility to back out of agreements, to change agreements, to uh, you know, pretty much do whatever they want uh, and not be bound by contractual language. And that is evident in the whole hymn saga. It's been evident in the uniform saga, uh, even as far back as closing the, the JFK crew base. There was no partnership. There was just an announcement that we're doing this and then, you know, trying to mitigate the fallout from that decision uh, afterwards. And I think, you know, that, that, that common, there is a difference in philosophy between this pilot group and our senior leadership in that they do not want to be bound by agreements. They want to be, they will tell you that they're a small airline and they need to be nimble and they need flexibility. And, you know, they basically want us to uh, sacrifice uh, quality of life issues, job security issues, a whole number of issues to give them this flexibility they want to do whatever they want to meet whatever situation uh, might arise. And, you know, the, the straw man argument there is that just because there's a written agreement that if some major event happens or some economic situation would arise that would put the company in any sort of jeopardy that we would simply be unwilling to you know, try to find a solution. And what we're saying is a true partnership means if there's, you know, let's let's enter into language, let's enter into a contract, and let's, you know, let's stick to that contract. And if, if there are problems, if a, if, a, if a policy isn't working, if something's not working, that we sit down collectively together and try to solve the problem. What they want to do is, uh, and, and this has come up over and over again, is if they don't like the way things are going, they're just gonna change it. And that's tough. And this, they want the union leadership to go out and tell all the pilots that they should be happy about that, which of course we know is absurd. And, and I'll jump on that in terms of the flexibility and mention that we have always acknowledged the fact that flexibility is kind of a requirement of you know an evolving contract or evolving language. Uh, on the HIMSS thing, we provided that flexibility in the proposed letter of agreement, which we did publish to the pilots as well, to ask, what are we missing here? Uh, the, the flexibility to adapt over time to changes to, as they said, not understanding the program, that was there. But it's important that flexibility is different than a, the ability to unilaterally change things, right? Flexibility is a mutual flexibility. Um, and in the HIMS case, for that program to be effective, the pilots who are participating in HIMS have to have a, an understanding of what the program is, that the language that they're looking at applies to them if they enter the program. It won't be unilaterally changed. I mean, if you disincentivize participation in a HIMS program, you bury the problem. It's a safety program. You, you know, the idea is to draw 
the issues of addiction out, treat them, and mitigate that risk. Not to paper over it and pretend like there isn't a problem and disincentivize participation. Do you want real safety or paper safety? Yeah, this... Go ahead, David. I was going to say, this issue really reminds me of FOQA, which is another safety program. And because it's safety, you want to make sure that it's consistent and remains the same over time and regardless of who is in place. And so it lives in binding contractual language. But just because it's in contractual language doesn't mean that the parties can't address it from time to time. Yeah, there are regular meetings on all kinds of areas of our contract. In fact, one of the, the areas, there's quarterly meetings required for crew meals, for example, to, to deal with the flexibility of concerns that arise in our current CBA. And those quarterly meetings, the company shun them. They've attended maybe 50% of them, which was key to some frustrations I articulated in a, a letter to the pilots weeks ago. An additional concern to bring up is that we're watching the company trying to dismantle the mutual uh, the mutual language in FOQA. Uh, recent proposals brought across the table by the company have uh, stripped the mutual consent language out of it. We've, of course, not agreed to any such language. But we're watching this stripping of any kind of mutual partnership uh, through other areas of our contract and FOCA, a, a successful safety program happens to be one that they are absolutely attacking uh, during Section 6 negotiations. Yep. I, th- I think the punchline here is that at that meeting, we absolutely identified a key concern of ours being this partnership and that there had to be a partnership moving forward for this to be a successful contract negotiation. And instead, what we have seen in hymns, in uniforms, and this last week in FOQA has been a direct repudiation of that, total rejection of that premise. And so the issue isn't necessarily hymns or uniforms, but it's what this rejection foreshadows and what it means when we start to get into things that are absolutely critical and important to the Alaska pilots. Exactly. And I think, you know, what we're talking about right now, hymns and uniforms, they're they're pretty narrow and specific and maybe not apply to every pilot on the pilot group. But as you say, we should be concerned. So we'll speak to that a little bit more. Why should these issues or what we're learning about management through these issues, why should people stand up and and pay attention to this? Well, this is a wake-up call. I mean, if you want the contract you deserve, if we want to protect our careers. The value of a career at this airline is depending upon, obviously, when you get into it, millions of dollars. And that's when we talk about safeguarding our future. Safeguarding our future is about drawing up a contract that protects your future, whether that be in issues of scope or compensation or quality of life. These are all things that people should sit up and pay attention to when they hear about these failures of hymns or uniforms or FOQA, what it's talking about is that even if those issues are are not relevant to you today, they don't speak to you, you don't lose any sleep over them. Tomorrow they are going to touch areas of your life that will directly impact your career at this airline. They will directly impact things that are very important to you. That mindset will touch something that matters to you tomorrow. 
we're alarmed and that's the reason that maybe you've seen so much traffic and so many emails and communication on these topics is because I think the pilots should be sitting up. They should be taking as much notice and be just as concerned as we are. Yeah, I I agree with that, Will. I, I think, you know, this the hymns and the uniform situation to me should be the canary in the coal mine for this entire pilot group because I think when you look at uh, you know, one one issue that most pilots would agree if directly affects them and is unsatisfactory at this point is Section 25 schedules and quality of life issues. And to think that uh, a company that doesn't want to relinquish any sort of control over such a positive, successful, and proven program as HIMSS, uh, that they would turn around and be likely to relinquish any control or offer any flexibility to this pilot group with respect to Section 25 schedules and quality of life uh, is delusional. And so I think, uh, you know, this doesn't bode well for the road ahead. This this is going to be a, a difficult process to get through this agreement. And I think pilots have really got to pay attention. They've got to get engaged. And, and read our communications and, and be ready to do what we ask of them in the months ahead. Uh, this, this will not be easy. Well, yeah, uh, obviously, and that's the same thing that we're concerned about here, is this ineffective problem solving seems to be a recurring theme. And, you know, in this negotiating cycle and in all negotiating cycles, we have, it's not just in-house folks. I mean, we have, in this case, especially professional uh, negotiators, legal support, economic finance and analysis support, um, who have been a part of a negotiation at nearly every other property that Alpa represents, right? And they've seen the good, the bad, they've seen the challenges, and when they're concerned about just how impossible it seems to problem solve over you know, simple issues at this property, <laughs> when, when they're rolling their eyes, that doesn't bode well for us. No, and you know, maybe you could put that into a little bit more perspective. And I think the hymns language is interesting to this point in, in the way that RMEC was given final, agreed to, written language, and that was backtracked. So maybe flesh that out a little bit to sort of make that point about. Um, the, the good how surprised even our professional negotiators are at what they're seeing. Well, yeah, and we had arrived at, and after years of negotiations that I was at, at the table for, uh, for quite a bit of, to, to reach a HIMSS program that was truly representative of the disease model of addiction and treatment. It was, it was, it was what negotiations should arrive at, right? I mean, everybody agreed that we'd ultimately done the right thing, as painful as it may have been to get there. And that was presented for a vote and for agreement um, by the MEC, and that language was the language that was approved. And uh, I, I guess I didn't want to get too deep into the weeds of, uh, you know, dirty laundry, so to speak, but then to come back weeks later and say, well, even though you've agreed to all of this, we've, we've let additional lawyers take a look at it, additional people have, have taken, and now we have misgivings and we want to change, change things. I, you know, at what point is the process so broken that, that that happens? Yeah, I think, you know, when the MEC is agreeing to language, there needs to be some trust that final language is actually final language. And if they say yes to this, 
it yeah, won't change. Y- you think? And don't forget the. Um, they said yes with the understanding that it would exist in the contract, and which was another right. And, and, and again, more of that dirty laundry back and forth. But this, well, somebody misunderstood that there was an agreement to keep it uh, in the FOM versus a letter of agreement. I, I would say that we have emails that prove otherwise. Okay, I, I do want to point something out in that that the ultimately, despite the um, the regressive pass on the language. We do have some people in management who are devout fans of hymns, who get it, who understand. And so the, the, the language that is about to be, we assume when we see it, rolled out in the FOM is actually the language, though, that your MEC passed. And that was through uh, the efforts of people who are advocates in management. We just obviously couldn't get it to the point where it was going to live as it should in a letter of agreement. But uh, in theory, for at least the first five minutes that it's on on paper in the FOM, it will be the language that the MEC approved. And then they'll change it however they see fit, I'm sure. Yeah. And you know, that brings up another good point about why it's important that this lives in an LOA. We may have great faith in the people that are in place right now to govern this program, but over time, five years from now, 10 years from now, we don't know who will be here and we don't know who will be in management and what their objectives will be. Correct. Right, right. And that that's different people change places in the management team. Um, and that's obviously reflective of everything in our contract. They'll have different perspectives. You've seen that in uniform standards, in fact, right? That's changed over time, too. This is This goes to the whole idea of codifying the rules of the game into a contract with an amendable date so that everybody can develop expectations and go live their life and make decisions without having to worry about what's going to change tomorrow. And HIMSS is obviously no different. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we've talked about what's been going on lately. We've talked about this in the context of history. And so for some of our pilots, uh, you know, my seniority, I've been here 17 years Chewy, it's been what twenty four since the earth cooled. Since <laughs> the earth cooled, thank you. Will. Right, I mean, I, I, just I, about to pass twenty four years. Yeah, so some people may be thinking, and in fact, you've said it yourself here. It hasn't been very shocking to see this behavior. Um, were you surprised? Or? No, I was not surprised. Unfortunately, the this is a, an all too uh, familiar pattern that I've seen over all 24 years here. Now, having said that, I could see uh, a fellow pilot asking me, well, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are we proceeding the way we proceed? The Railway Labor Act Section 6 negotiations are very defined. And the rules of how to affect change down the line with an intransigent uh, ineffective negotiating party are very are very uh, well defined as well, and so we don't have the latitude to be the intransigent party here. We don't have the latitude to simply put up a wall and and walk away. It's it's interesting to watch because things at the table have had fits and starts of being able to do the right thing. We've seen real positive signs uh, that that make you think that this can be achieved by the end of bo- amendable date. And then suddenly you hit what must be uh, a pain point, a sensitive subject. And I'm surprised that it's things like 
hymns or uh, uniforms or FOQA, you know, Section 30. But, but hey, if that's their – and then they regress. So it's a little little puzzling. Joe, do you have anything you'd like to add to these yeah. last couple points? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I think this MEC, you know, certainly since I've been involved with it, is – Far from being a radical MEC, I think it is a group of outstanding individuals that are looking to solve problems, uh, that want the company to be successful, that would love us to all be on board, as management loves to say. But, you know, that requires some degree of commitment to management to actually solve our problems and not come into the room dismiss our problems and, and tell us how things are going to be or agree to changes that would make us happy and then come back later and walk those, you know, agreements back. Um, trust is is so important in negotiations. I don't think anyone's naive enough to, to think that everyone's going to come in and be a Boy Scout. But as was mentioned earlier, when you have national uh, resources telling us who have been doing this literally for decades that we have one of the most difficult management groups in the industry to work with i think you know that speaks volumes and we've seen it again and again whether it's a small problem or a big one it's just really hard to get things done and and i know chewy was in on at least one meeting with me where we heard the phrase they love to use so often and that is you know we can get to agreement as long as you guys are in a box in a box um, for an airline that always wants to think outside the box, they spend a lot of time in this box. And the box they're living in is one of about 20 years ago. Uh, the, the industry has changed, the landscape has changed, and I think we are being very reasonable. We, we, we're not out looking for any sort of uh, uh, crazy language in our contract or provisions that would be unheard of in the industry or anything. We're struggling just to get to you know, industry norms industry standards. The HIMSS, the HIMSS situation is a perfect example of this. As Chewy said, this, is a, this isn't fuzzy science. This isn't a program that is unproven or untried and management has a good reason to be nervous about it. This is a program that has been overwhelmingly successful. You cannot argue with the science and yet, as usual, they still feel that is not, we don't know what's best for us, the industry doesn't know what's best, science doesn't know what's best, only Alaska senior leadership knows what's best. And, and that, that is a difficult uh, situation to deal with and, and that's where we find ourselves and that's why this process has been so painful. Well, pilots and podcast listeners, This conversation will continue in the next episode, which will be released soon. You have heard about our frustrations and what has not been going well. In part two, we will talk about what your MEC is doing to mitigate the difficulties we are having and what you can do to be a helpful part of that process. Before we move on, though, we want to address a question that often comes up regarding whether there is truly a requirement to get fit for and to order a uniform. Will... How would you answer that question? Uh, well, as to the the fitting, a fitting has never been required. I mean, a fitting is a, an issue of convenience. It's so the pilot could, if there was an MEC approved uniform, have one that they felt 
fit them better, had the opportunity, because apparently one of the concerns that we've heard time and time again is that the sizing's a little strange on on this, and especially for certain body types, and uh, women in particular have had problems getting fitted well for it. But it's a matter of convenience, so there's no obligation to go to a fitting. And we find it difficult to understand why we'd go to a fitting for a uniform that's not approved. Right. Right, until the MEC approves a uniform or mutually agrees to a uniform, there's really no uniform to be fitted into. (laughs) That's verbatim what we've said, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So. I also find it problematic that it basically it's on a, uh, my own time, my own days off. Um, exactly, exactly. I was going to mention the same thing, Chewy. That you know, I know it, certainly for my base in San Francisco, there has not been offered, will not apparently be offered any opportunity to be fitted for a uniform at the airport. So for San Francisco being a seventy percent roughly commuter base, that means the guy's going to you know have to on his own time find a way to get to wherever the fitting is and uh, get fitted for a uniform that has not yet been approved by the MEC uh, it's you know it doesn't make a lot of sense and uh, it's certainly you know the, the reason why the MEC hasn't recommended people do that and and it fits right into the the questions we get about well what do I do if I don't go to a fitting Well, you order it to the best of your ability, and if it doesn't fit, you have either a poor-fitting uniform or, more precisely to our point, is that there has to be a well-established procedure for exchanges and returns. That's one of the questions that we've tried to seek clarity on because people have received very inconsistent feedback on that exact topic. But there's no reason to do that. You can obviously just order the thing if and when the time is appropriate. So, Will, you brought up very specifically ordering, and that was the mandate that was given to us without mutual agreement in the uniform itself. And I think it would be prudent to point out that we are a long way, time-wise, from a September 30th deadline. Your MEC is looking into each and every possible step to oppose what we think is a unilateral action that the company does not have the right to do. We are working through that process. That process is not yet complete. Therefore, there is no impetus to have to do any action today. Whether or not the September 30th deadline will be enforceable, you will get information in the days ahead. But we are taking every step we can to oppose what we see as incorrect unilateral action. And until then, we see, again, no need to, to take action on a mandate that we don't think is correct. And just to be clear, you're not saying that you're taking action to oppose the uniform. You're opposing the, the unilateral action to require the purchase of a uniform before it's had mutual agreement from the MEC. Thank you, David. Yeah, it is the MEC's uh, desire and wish, and we've proven it at the table, that we want to come to a resolution on that. There is no absolute opposition to the uniform. It's not my decision to make or not make. That's the MEC's. But yes, we, we oppose the fact that they think they can unilaterally impose a deadline to order on a uniform that has not uh, uh, achieved mutual agreement. Right. And, and so while you've said that, yes, there's no 
imminent issue here, right? We have, depending upon when, obviously, this gets released, but we had 40-something days from the time that those letters went out. That's a long time for the MEC to work. Again, we've been fully willing. We will work with the company to address concerns, and possibly we do find mutual agreement on this. And likewise, our legal team is making sure that your contractual rights are protected. Right. Every provision in that contract... You know, negotiating capital was spent to get it for this pilot group, and it's absolutely essential to defend the contract, and that's that's what this is about. And and you'll have guidance further down the road. So for anybody who's anxiety-ridden about what they should do now, I would say relax. There's nothing to do now. This concludes Part 1. Thank you for listening. Be on the lookout for Part 2, which will be released soon. If you haven't done so already, Remember, you may subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman Captain David Campbell. Thank you for listening.